Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Double Stranded Podcast, a podcast where we'll talk about everything related to genetics. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Raquel Cuella Martin, whose work is mainly focused on genome editing and DNA damage response. She's a brilliant scientist, and I cannot wait to share our conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's so good to see you. I wanted to first uh, congratulate you on your official lab opening, which is such a huge <laughs> accomplishment. You. I actually read somewhere that only one in 10 grad students will actually like make it to run their own lab one day, which is like really huge. So um, how's the recruitment process going for your lab? Um, I think that's, that's going well. I am quite happy with uh, the students, uh, mm -hmm. my current student and the upcoming 2023 fall 2023 cohort uh recruitment in other areas is much more tricky yeah. we have a shortage of postdocs um, yeah, exactly. so that's an ongoing search but um, mm -hmm. you know uh, we are doing some science as you were saying we are now up and running so it's it's exciting to see yeah, to see that for sure so you uh, yourself did your postdoc at uh, columbia university right yes and uh, so it says here that uh, you used CRISPR-dependent base editing to perform genetic screens, right? Yep. So let's break this down. What is CRISPR? What is CRISPR-dependent base editing? What is base editing? And what is genetic screen? <laughs> okay, so, well, I'll start from the first word. Yeah, CRISPR. Um, I think that by now, since the this CRISPR work came to our lives as like the this uh, tool for engineering our genome, uh, you know, with that flagship publication 2012-2013, and I guess received even more buzz with the Nobel Prize that was mm -hmm. awarded to Davna and Charpentier. Um, like, I think everybody, like, you know, many people that I've that are not in the field and I talk to them, they're like, oh, that's like the thing, like the, those, those like scissors, like, or the genetic scissors. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Ex exactly. That's, yeah. that's, that's what it is. It's uh, um, very powerful tool to do genome engineering. Uh, but if I follow on that CRISPR-dependent base editing, mm -hmm. um, the CRISPR-Cas9 system that was the one that was traditionally used is, um, like more technically this in here, is an RNA-guided endonuclease. So mm -hmm. it will go to our genome and cut. Uh, and that way we can disrupt the gene function. Um, but the base editing is a new engineer protein, like a new engineer version of that Cas9 that uh, goes to our genome and has another enzyme coupled to it and makes a mutation. Mm -hmm. So instead of now having a cut, we are making a single point mutation in a specific region. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess that was really cool that development came later, 2016, 2017. And um, very interestingly, because, you know, our the majority of our genetic variation is just single point mutations. Mm -hmm. It's not full of a uh, loss of a gene. It's just yeah. single changes. So um, that's uh, the power of this technology. That's mm -hmm. what base editing means. Like base, obviously we change a base at a time, a DNA mm -hmm. base at a time. So like before this technology, we couldn't uh, do like uh, editing down to one base? So we could. Uh, there was another technology mm -hmm. uh, that used the Cas9 mm -hmm. as well, made a cut, and then you could put a donor template mm -hmm. uh, carrying that specific mutation and trust like that the cell will pick that template that was exogenous, think that is it's real, homologous, uh, mm -hmm. like sister chromatid, and insert that mutation in the genome. We could do that. Um, it's still in use, like, of course, um, but low efficiency mm -hmm. and highly dependent on the cell repair mechanisms. And also still you, we generate a cut on a gene that uh, it can either result in a knockout as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, but we had that, we had that technology uh, already in place, um, but the level of, uh, you know, of efficiency that base editing and versatility of using different cellular models that base editing gives 
was not there mm-hmm. before. So I think it was yeah. a clear step forward. What about this uh, genetic screen? Because uh, I guess uh, you do all of that to perform genetic screen, right? So um, I think what we do with best editing is what we call genetic screens at nucleotide resolution. Yeah. So uh, when you think about traditional CRISPR-Cas9, CRISPR knockout screens, the um, our resolution is like gene level. Mm-hmm. So you knock out a gene, you inquire the function. But we work with genes that are complex, that have multiple functions, that have that are large, that have you know you have a function that is driven by one part of the protein, another function driven by other part of the protein, multiple mm-hmm. interactors. So with this base editing, instead of gene level, this nucleotide level, mm-hmm. we do genetic interactions between mutations. Mm-hmm. So you go instead of full knockout, you mutate the gene from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and you inquire phenotype genotype associations when the genotype is not a knockout, is a mutation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's obviously moves the level of resolution to whole gene to specific amino acids. And that, that's, uh, you know, that's what it's uh, mm-hmm. our move forward. Mm-hmm. And when we call, we sell genetic screens, it's just like, because we do genetic modifications at high throughput level Mm -hmm. and we screen for a specific phenotype so to be able to draw those genotype phenotype associations Mm -hmm. is this uh, kind of like a similar to what you're doing right now in your lab it is or Mm -hmm. at least what what we want to do Mm -hmm. we have started yes and um, we see a lot of power on the technology we see a lot of genes that are not very thoroughly characterized mm. because they are tricky to work with and we see that that technology can give us a lot and actually when you inquire you make the mutations uh, in situ what we call in the endogenous loci you can inquire non-coding elements you can mm-hmm. inquire splice sites you can you know alternative splicing that that uh, it's something that uh, is a whole new thing that we can do now or the Gene regulatory elements is also mm-hmm. a whole new thing that we can do. We can do now. So yeah, yeah. So I was uh, doing a little bit of research, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently there is something uh, called uh, prime editing as well, and like base editing. I, I guess we kind of talked about this one. So uh, what is this uh, prime editing? I was telling you before about base editing. You have mm-hmm. a version of the Cas9 fused to a second protein that mm-hmm. makes a spoil mutation. And in the case of base editing, it's a cited in the aminase or a, an adenosine deaminase. In the case of prime editing, the second protein that you have is a retrotranscriptase. Mm-hmm. And why a retrotranscriptase, right? Mm-hmm. The um, Cas9 is guided to the specific sites of the genome where we want it to edit with an RNA. So it's an RNA-guided endonuclease. So one will think, like, I'm very smartly, the David Lewis lab thought, what if we extend that RNA, include mm-hmm. a template that the retrotranscriptase will recognize and think, okay, you know, I can synthesize DNA that is homologous to that template. Mm-hmm. So when you take the whole system to a specific side of the genome, uh, that retrotranscriptase starts synthesizing inside our genome mm-hmm. based on the template that we are inserting. So instead of only single nucleotide variants, we can now insert small insertions, uh, we can do small deletions. Um, so, you know, that's uh, a bit expanding a bit more our toolbox for specific mm-hmm. edits. Uh, Is this uh, based on CRISPR? It's based on CRISPR, yeah. Okay. You have a Cas9, a Nikase version of the Cas9 uh, fused to that retrotranscriptase mm-hmm. and the Cas9 acts as like the guide for that mm-hmm. retrotranscriptase to to the specific sites. So these are all like different versions of CRISPR? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So like before CRISPR, what was the history of the field? Like what were people doing before CRISPR? Immediately, I think immediately before or the thing that was a bit more similar were like uh, there were other types of nucleases. Mm-hmm. Um, people were using like sim finger nucleases or the talent systems to make, mm-hmm. to do a bit what CRISPR is doing to make cuts in the genome. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a lot of recombination-based systems, for instance, the way mm-hmm. the uh, not transgenic mice were regenerated. Yeah. That was all recombination-based. 
there, it was not like we couldn't do genome editing before. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we went from like, okay, you know, you had to have a lot of expertise. You had to have like, uh, it was more laborious. It was like pretty challenging and mm. to have something that we could do mm. in any lab at any time with much more ease and much more efficiency. So mm -hmm. that's... Uh, so uh, now that we have uh, CRISPR and all these uh, technologies, uh, what are the main applications? You know, I take your question more towards uh, clinical applications. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that it's hard to yeah. <laughs> pick one. No, so um, we can do a lot of things on the drug development area. We will have worked uh, for target. We have used CRISPR and CRISPR screenings for target identification. Uh, so, like, what are specific uh, tumor vulnerabilities uh, using inquiring the effects of knockouts? Mm. Um, in tumor cells, um, but I think for me one of the most exciting applications comes from the in the field of gene therapy. Since CRISPR started, that people saw the value on that, and now even with base editing and prime editing, I think even more, they are very efficient genome editors. So if you suffer from a genetic condition that is caused by a specific mutation, um, well, that might be able to be corrected. And mm -hmm. that is where this kind of gene therapy is going forward. Like, can we, can we do that? Can we actually mm -hmm. engineer those CRISPR systems and deliver them in an efficient manner in an adult and mm -hmm. be able to correct a genetic defect? And um, Yes, uh, so you mentioned uh, drug development. Can you like give us some examples of the projects uh, that used CRISPR in drug development? Okay. Um, I will say that one of the things that, uh, you know, where I think CRISPR has been uh, heavily used uh, is in the, what we call the synthetic lethality uh, mm. field. Um, so if you have a tumor, and I will talk about cancer research because that's a bit mm. more like I, yeah. I always lean towards that. Um, if you have a tumor and the tumor have a, you know, has a specific gene amplification or has specific gene loss, mm. like, okay, how can we exploit that specific gene loss that is not present in normal cells? And with that, you put a whole genome library, you knock out every single gene of the genome individually, and you say, like, okay, which combination of that genomic alteration or epigenetic alteration that a tumor is carrying with a genetic knockout is giving us a synthetic lethality phenotype, meaning like now the cells are dying mm -hmm. much more than when the individual perturbations. And, you know, if you find that instance, now you have a drug, like you have a target. Mm -hmm. um, and that has been used. And then there are companies even here in Montreal that are developing drugs based on targets identified using mm -hmm. these CRISPR screenings. Um, and that moves us towards more of like the, what we call the personalized medicine. Uh, and like you mm -hmm. have this tumor with this specific genetic alteration or epigenetic alteration, we can give you this drug because those are vulnerabilities that are being directly targeted. Um, but uh, like the way that you described it, uh, it sounded like so expensive and labor intensive <laughs> to like check every possible. Is it like this? I guess with CRISPR, it has become much less labor intensive to do mm -hmm. something like that. I would say that for what you get out of it is not labor intensive at all. Mm -hmm. But yes, when you have to sit in tissue culture for many hours to yeah. do those screens, uh, they are not, uh, they are laborious. They are big mm -hmm. experiments. Uh, they tend to be long. Um, but no, the way they are conducted is like you do it in a group of cells in, in pooled populations. And we have strategies to then inquire the effects of the individual phenotypes or tease them apart mm -hmm. uh, by using next generation sequencing. Um, that uh, yeah, I think it has it has significantly simplified uh, our way of doing screenings. And it's not like we were not doing them before. Mm -hmm. Like um, we have been using SARN, SIRNAs, SHRNAs for uh, inquiring whole genomes. Uh, before, but now we can do genetic knockouts, and you know, that's uh, that gives us a next level of confidence. Uh, How much of the whole process can you like automate? Um, hmm. 
I think bottom line here is that the tissue culture part, mm. that's not... Or very like, is easy, it something very that, easy to automate. <laughs> that's yeah, uh, yeah. that's what takes us more. Mm -hmm. That's where we sit in the hood for mm -hmm. a long time. Um, readout measurement that's, that can be automatized. Like of course, uh, um, if you have library preparation and you know you can do fluidic. Mm -hmm. uh, we use fluid. But is it like something that uh, people care about? Like I don't know, a group of researchers. Uh, like working specifically to like simplify and like uh like the whole process uh i mean yeah we tend to we tend to mm. to always try to simplify yeah. the processes mm. and uh and yes the there are yeah i i would say i would say so that uh, everybody that works a bit more on technology development and a, a bit more on the process development area they tend mm. to work from what is the best Cas9 variant or the base editor that you can use that gives you the best definition of like the best resolution for your phenotypes to mm. what are the best timelines when can you get the can you get the same um, quality of data with like shorter screens versus longer screens uh, we do mm. we do that <laughs> we do mm -hmm. that because um, you know we want to have everything as optimized as possible that's uh, yeah it's always where we lean towards. So how do you uh, go about doing gene therapy with uh, this technology? So if you think, uh, I'll talk about base editing because that's a bit more um, where I am at. Mm -hmm. uh, base editing was, the papers were 2016-2017 and people started thinking on how to use it for, um, for gene therapy. We now have... Uh, gene therapy in clinical trials mm -hmm. uh, using base editing um, to um, actually a gene probably that you have heard of, uh, heard of many times to correct uh, PSSK9 mm -hmm. uh, for hypercholesterolemia, familial hypercholesterolemia. And that's that went already through the preclinical, the mouse mm -hmm. models, there was work done in... Um, you know, in non-human primates. And then that moved to clinic. And in the span of, what, we'll say five years, six mm. years tops. Um, how do you go about it? Uh, well, the the current, I think the current technology is that's, uh, it's um, ribonucleoprotein-based delivery. So you deliver the base editor, you deliver mm -hmm. the guide RNA that will lead that base editor to your specific region, mm -hmm. and then that's a, is, that, that is systemically delivered uh, to mm -hmm. the person. Uh, in the work that was done in monkeys, they observed that uh, mm -hmm. they got reversion of the genetic alteration in the liver at high rate, and that that resulted in you know, a, reduce, a, a reduction in the cholesterol uh, that was stable for two years. Mm. So that's, you know, that's, I think that's uh, how it has been traditionally. And I think that there are two, perhaps two clinical trials at the moment that just started mm. uh, moving those therapies forward. And I yeah. think I think it's pretty impressive for the short life of those technologies, like five, six mm. years. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned also uh, cancer therapy, which I guess is uh, one of the more exciting mm -hmm. areas uh, that this technology is being applied to. Uh, and is, uh, is this uh, your uh, research topic, cancer? I work a bit more on cancer, yes. Uh, uh, so maybe we can like uh, elaborate on this cancer therapy. Yeah, I think I mean it links a bit more in the in in cancer. It links a bit more, or what I know. Links a bit more with the with the concept of synthetic lethality that I was talking to you um, about before. Mm -hmm. um, my research uh, is more on molecular mechanisms mm -hmm. uh, of anti-tumorigenesis. Mm -hmm. uh, so not not much on identifying that drug targets, um, but you know, it's mm -hmm. equally important. Uh, but also, I think. You know, specifically in the base editing realm, we do have quite a lot to say with these technologies for patient stratification, for target drug interactions. You can imagine that if you design a drug 
um, you will want to know which patients are going to respond or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, if you are targeting a genetic vulnerability, okay, these patients have variants of uncertain significance on the gene that triggers a genetic vulnerability. Are they eligible for therapy or not? Mm-hmm. And we can do that those phenotype genotype associations with this technology. Or you design a drug. And you think it buys this region specifically, but are there other regions in the target that could be influencing that binding? And you can do that characterization also mm-hmm. uh, with these technologies. Uh, if there is any allosteric sites that could be regulating and directly that binding. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's uh, you know, there are a lot of steps in that drug development process, mm-hmm. particularly for, for cancer that we can uh, tackle a bit better. Uh, with with this is uh, but uh, the current state of this technology, right? Yeah. So, um, what uh, breakthroughs can we expect to see in the coming years? What are you excited about? <laughs> I am I am very excited to see what comes uh, up on all the gene therapy realm, because we are at the stage where you can go to papers and see that more work has been done preclinically, at least in mouse models. Um, there was a mouse model of progeria where the mutation was corrected and the lifespan of that mice was doubled, mm-hmm. almost to a normal lifespan. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has been just very recently published um, um, very similar work on mice with SMA mm-hmm. and how the correction of the mutation largely reverted the phenotype. So whether those things, when those things reach the mm. point where more work, more preclinical work is done, probably in uh, primates, and that it reach the, reaches the clinic, I am like, I really want to see the results of those clinical trials. Yeah. I really want to see whether we are able to, to cure, effectively cure those mm. patients with a single dose of of a treatment in this case so that I am like even if uh, I am incredibly excited about mm. uh, my own work that and maybe I will move towards that in my research as well seeing whether mm. we can extend that technology to more and more uh, genetic disorders and seeing that into clinic mm. I was like yeah that's uh, I, I keep an eye on those trials and see what yeah. I, where are the releases of uh, mm. um, of data because I really want to see it how longer uh, until this happens? I think uh, the first trial, the one that I was telling you PS4, PSSK9, mm. uh, the first wave of results is expected in the 2024. Uh, mm. They started recruiting last year, if I'm not wrong, but like phase phase mm. one, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, so, and seeing other things moving to their clinics, uh, I think in the next year or two years, we will have a few more examples already in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, dosing patients like FDA approve uh, dosing mm-hmm. patients, we may need to wait for a bit longer. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, towards the end of this decade, we may be seeing uh, mm-hmm. a lot of things moving forward. Yeah, and, uh, has any of these uh, things made it to like a clinical trial? Like actually we can like test it on a patient or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The PCSK9 is on clinical trials. That mm-hmm. that that base editing uh, is already on clinical trials. So okay. yeah, that's why I'm like I keep an eye on mm-hmm. those trials to see whether when when they have some results. Uh, yeah, like even in Canada or like? Oh, it's in the states. That trial, okay. that trial that I'm talking about is it's on mm-hmm. the states. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Okay. Uh, so this is all good, but uh, like, uh, what? Uh, what are some of the limitations uh, of this uh, technology that we have? Mm-hmm. Um, well, like technical, technical issues. Limita- yeah. I was like, okay, technical limitations. So um, in the case of CRISPR-Cas9 based approaches, mm-hmm. because there are also um, CRISPR-Cas9 approaches um, out there for clinical applications, um, uh, we have the problem of off-targets. Mm-hmm. So you might be mm, knocking out other genes that you were not intending to, right? Like your mm. your um, RNA molecule that is guiding your Cas9 to your site of interest might bind other regions, you know, in in mm. the 
in how big our genome is and it's yeah. only a 20 nucleotide sequence it might have other places mm -hmm. where it can anneal and uh, take your Cas9 there and it will your Cas9 will also cut there <laughs> so of target assessment I think it's something that is very important um, and uh, should be clearly incorporated in what you do when you developed one of those gene therapies like it should be there should be a, f a very thorough framework on assessing that before that reaches the clinic mm -hmm. uh, and that's i think that that's uh, a limitation another limitation that i will say uh, we will think about that maybe down the line is that the cas9 generates immunogenicity mm -hmm. so obviously it's an exogenous protein and what is that that you know you have your you deliver your cas the cas9 uh, protein into your system to be mm -hmm. able to make that edit your immune system is recognizing that as an exogenous protein mm -hmm. so can generate antibodies against it and mount an immune response uh, against the cas9 so why this might be a problem so imagine that you have a genetic alteration and you are, are eligible for one of those gene therapies let's let's move ourselves like 10 years in the future right mm -hmm. uh, and then you do it once your genetic alteration is corrected, but in five years, you know, our cells renew, uh, you start seeing that you have symptoms again. Mm. Um, maybe because, you know, you have um, cells that were mutated or like some cells that were mutated and then they kept on repopulating the certain organ or a certain uh, tissue. And then you need a second dose. Okay, if your cells mounted an immune response against the Cas9 the first time, mm. you might not that that second dose might generate an immune response and actually that Cas9 might never reach the site and mm. from that second dose you might not get anything at all. And that has been observed in monkeys that mm. a second dosing was not improving the outcome. And they were thinking probably because they mounted an immune response against that exogenous Cas9 and the second time you inject it's like the immune system is like this is exogenous get rid of it mm -hmm. uh, so that's something that as we have not gone with those trials that long to know if the patient will stay with the mutation corrected and whatever forever um we don't know but that's how, how but serious that's something that like has are these problems um like to the point that like it stops the whole research the the um, like I would I would say I would say the off targets are something that people take a lot into into consideration. Like that's mm -hmm. but that's first line when you are designing the therapy. That's one of the first things that you are like you mm -hmm. want to minimize as much as possible. And there are different versions actually of the Cas9 that have higher fidelity. So you know you have you need to have a perfect match of your guide RNA with your DNA mm. for that Cas9 to cut. And the moment it binds somewhere else with a mismatch, that Cas9 is not cutting. So those high fidelity variants are um, being used for gene therapy because it, it decreases your off-target. So there is work and a lot of ongoing work towards minimizing that problem because that, that might be something that will tell you like you are not moving forward yeah. with this uh, the way you this, this therapy is built is not safe for the patients mm. um, regarding the immunogenicity I think that's something that might be um, you know that they may work to avoid uh, but we still don't know the consequences and actually one of the things uh, about base editing or the new technologies is that they minimize for instance, double strand break generation, like the, the the Cas9 doesn't cut anymore, so the cell doesn't respond to that as a damage uh, to their DNA. So that minimizes certain problems that the Cas9 has. Uh, so I think that as long as the technology development uh, research mm -hmm. moves, um, we get better and better options uh, to translate to therapy as well. And... Uh, the off-targets uh, is something that the base editors are a bit better at, although they have other problems. And um, and yeah, just you cannot you cannot know. You just need to keep working mm -hmm. on on these problematics and try to 
to get it to to get it to the best possible mm-hmm. point but at the same time you need to find a compromise yeah. between trying to push something to clinic and um knowing that it's obviously not in the optimal desirable form that you will have loved for it to be mm-hmm. um or with no risk there might be always a minimal risk of of targets a minimal risk of uh, lower efficiency, a minimal risk of a therapy not working for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, I yeah. think that that's, again, as any other therapy that is now in the market. Yeah. but uh, So like uh, how much of it is like uh, just chance you can't do anything about it? And like how much of it you can prevent with like better, I don't know, experiment design? Uh, no, I mean, I think that the things that are... Um, the things that are intrinsic to the technology, that's, you know, if you want to do a Cas9 based approach, you know that the Cas9 cuts. Mm. So that's intrinsic to how the technology works. Um, that's it. You can work to uh, use other other advant- advantages and or more advantageous cons, um, uh, developments like base editing or prime editing and don't cut, but that's, if you choose that to move forward, you know that that's a problem that is intrinsic to the technology mm-hmm. because that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, if you're like, okay, I'm, but I'm doing a Cas9 based therapy for sure, uh, then you're like, okay, within the realm of how can you design, you can design a, that experiment, let's minimize the other problems. Like off targets are an intrinsic problem, but you can have more or less. So you would go mm-hmm. for the less. On target might be an intrinsic problem, but you could work to try to get the optimal on target um, with like different experimental design. But you know there are things that are like pure intrinsic to the technology that you are not going to be able to change much unless you change to another technology or an improvement of that technology. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's what people are trying to do. Like that, all that work, there is substantial work and like really... Um, like by groups that are like out of this world, like extraordinary on moving the technologies forward and, and working out those improvements that reduce that, uh, those technology intrinsic problems that are the ones that we can not avoid really. Hmm. Uh, before we move on, I wanted to ask you about this, that uh, how much of genome editing is hype and like how much <laughs> of it is real? Cause I, I feel like it's, it's kind of like AI that like, the impact is huge and it's real, but also there's a lot of hype around it. So how do you feel about that? Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. I think I'm very critical with the hype myself. Like sometimes you do something, uh, something gets, you know, you have a new discovery, you apply it in the lab in cells and oh, like the way that gets out to the media is like, this is going to cure everything. Like, and you're like, mm. uh, no. Like we don't know how that can translate to animal models, how that will translate to therapy, how that will like we yeah. don't know. So that sometimes it's like the hype gets generated on results that are promising, but small. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think that you need to be aware of the potential of the technology, but be very realistic about where we are at. The hype is often not generated by the scientists. Uh, which that's why we need to get a bit better at uh, communicating and mm-hmm. at outreach. The hype is often generated by media. Mm-hmm. Um, we discover something. I say like this is this is this is very. You write a sentence like okay, this this can be promising for this that and that, and immediately the translation yeah. is like this is already done, and mm-hmm. you're like no, that might be. Base editing was discovered in twenty. 2016, 2017, uh, or was engineer or like the the first uh, versions of it. Hmm. Now, 2022, into 2023, uh, we are seeing clinical trials. Of course, yeah. it was promising back in the day, but we are seeing clinical trials in one disorder. In like until that, yeah. and that is starting the clinical trials. Whether that will work or not, yeah. we still don't know. But it, I think. Um, I think sometimes the hype is justified because the technology is moving fast mm. um, and it has a lot of potential, um, but uh, very realistic about where we are at. And where we are at is, I think, yeah, moving very fast, but still uh, being very cautious uh, yeah. 
until we see that it works. Like the scientists are usually more, much more cautious until we see that it works. Um, What about like uh, funding agencies? Are they like more inclined to uh, fund gene editing projects or something? Mm, like. Tell that to CIHR. <laughs> <laughs> I will be very happy if they are inclined to find my pro- to find my projects. I will say that um, perhaps yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that much about funding agencies because I am, you know, you said it, I'm new to this mm-hmm. PI world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's my first time going around asking for money. But I will say that, uh, you know, advances in the genome editing field are well received by, for instance, publishing sources, like that they, they tend to be, you know, really receptive to advances in those technologies. I have found that the Canadian um, community does not have as much research on genome editing as I would have liked to. Mm-hmm. And so we will work on that, uh, on moving that forward as much as we can. The more mm. we work, the more we advance, the more things we can put out there, um, the more receptive CIHR and mm-hmm. CERC will be to projects like that. Because I do think the scientists are like, people yeah. are like very keen on collaborating. It's like, these technologies are so cool. Like, can we can we use them? Can we do this and that? Um, but it's sometimes hard to break through the projects. You know, mm-hmm. imagine like if you write a project about developing uh, gene therapy for X or Y, like those projects are high risk. Yeah. Or about developing a new tool, even if you have, you come with the expertise, they are like, ooh. Um, so the funding agencies sometimes are a bit conservative uh, mm. on that end. But, you know, we will we will fight. <laughs> we'll <Yeah>. fight. <laughs> uh, you said uh, scientists are more uh, cautious uh, when it comes to like uh, promising things that... Uh, are supposed to come with these technologies, but like, uh, what inspired you to pursue a career in genome editing? Well, uh, I have to say that that was a bit uh, serendipity for me. Um, my background and my work, and still my biological interests, uh, are on studying the response to DNA damage. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I was doing that and applying already CRISPR like I started my postdoc my PhD in 2014 and um, and CRISPR had been discovered just a little bit before mm. and um, or had not discovered but had been applied to engineer the human genome sorry uh, a little bit before and we we just jumped onto that I made my mm. like my first experiments of my PhD were making knockout cell lines using mm. that that technology and then we make it like knocking mice using that technology and but that was not my you know I was a core pure molecular biologist and then I ended up on my postdoc and I had this um, okay you know maybe we can scale base editing that discovered in 2016-2017 my postdoc in 2018 Mm -hmm. uh, starting uh, maybe we can apply this in a high throughput level like to inquire our genes uh, that in the DNA damage response many genes are tricky to inquire with different, mm-hmm. with other approaches. And I was like, okay. And then I ended up working on it, working on it, trying to optimize uh, the technology. And on the way there, saying like, this has a lot of potential. This is going to have a lot of applications. We can learn so much about biology. We can learn, uh, we can apply it for this. We can apply it to that. And, and that's, I wouldn't say that my career is on genome editing, uh, mm-hmm. but I would say like, you know, when they're like, you're an expert, I'm like, no, no. Yeah. But uh, we do use it a lot and I can, we can see the value of those technologies to move research farther. And uh, and that's, I mean, um, yeah, that's... Uh, what was supposed to be your uh, thesis for PhD initially? No, my thesis for PhD was always going to be that and yeah. that was what it was. I, uh, I worked on... Um, um, the interaction the, the, the of between uh, 53BP1, that is a protein that is involved in the repair of double-strand breaks, and P53 tumor suppression. And that was uh, for my... For my PhD, that was going to be my project, but actually I think maybe your question was towards my postdoc project. Mm. So I moved to the lab in the postdoc thinking of working on like more replication stress and uh, because it was a a replication lab, I will say. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, they have been starting playing around with those 
uh, genome editing technologies, you know, branched out and I yeah. ended up not doing any replication work and doing just screenings, screenings, screenings and uh, screen optimization and uh, validation mm -hmm. and trying to see what we could find yeah. with those that new technology. This is a bit random, but uh, can we also edit uh, epigenetic? We can actually. The, um, as part of what uh, I call sometimes the genome editing toolbox or the CRISPR toolbox, um, people have engineered the cast nucleases, adding all sorts of things. So, you know, mm -hmm. I tell the prime editing has a retrotranscriptase attached to it, base editing has a site in adenosine deaminase. Uh, so, there are other systems that either act on like transcriptional repression or transcriptional activation. You can mm -hmm. fuse your Cas9 to a chromatin modifier mm -hmm. and your Cas9 directed by the RNA will go to the places of the genome that you want it to go. And you can go there and do histone acetylation, histone deacetylation. You can go there. like so. Yeah. That's um, how you can use the the system to try to edit the uh, the epigenome as well. But like, uh, which one is uh, more important, like <laughs> editing genetics or epigenetic? I guess that's depending on who you ask. <laughs> I I work on genetics, so I will say. I will. I don't know if I dare to say genetics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's better not to limit uh, yeah. to one or the other. Um, but it's it, you know, it's good to see that uh, we have the versatility of being able to do both. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges facing researchers who work in this area? Uh, I guess like the the main one would be like ethical considerations. Um, I think if if you work um, more on the gene therapy realm, yes, you mm. will you will uh, have um, quite a bit to think about on that. Um, I think you know I, I I like to think that people that work on the genome editing feel like quite in agreement about the ethical considerations. Um, when I don't know if you've heard about you probably heard about because that was a big thing when. Um, a scientist in China engineered the genome of human embryos and, you know, those CRISPR babies were born. Uh, there was an unanimous response from the CRISPR, like the genome engineering community. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. We don't have the information. We don't have the, we are not at the stage of, being able to do anything like that, Technic technically we can, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that we know how that's going to impact, you know, in the long term. And also the consideration of editing human embryos mm -hmm. is something that it's forbidden in uh, many countries in the world. Um, and you're like, you know, and then the addition there that was for a receptor that uh, prevents uh, HIV entry, like that will you know, you will, even if you get in infected uh, with HIV, you will never develop AIDS. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you will be like, well, that's what was the priority of making that addition. You are not even, you were like, if I ever, ever think to where like, okay, you know, if we reach the point of cons even considering editing human embryos, the first thing that I will think will be like correcting genetic mutations that are associated with super strong disorders that like the kids have very low lifespans but not mm. that kind of yeah alter like i was like it was you but it was what it was encouraging to see was that the, the unanimous response from the field the field was like what is this mm. like this is just so wrong at so many levels uh you know like gene therapy is not even there on clinical like on the clinic yet to edit somatic alterations and mm. you are like going to the end. Like, no, yeah. but the babies are born and they are fine. I'm like, yeah, that's why you did it without ne nobody knowing, like, because mm. it was so legal. Like, yeah. and it's, um, it was, yeah, it was quite, it was quite interesting. You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, it was a good example for us to give us a reality check. What we can technically do doesn't mean, doesn't make it mm. correct. Doesn't mean that we can, we have like, uh, the right to to play with these tools as if mm -hmm. there like no control with no ethics with no yeah 
no considerations so yeah so do you think it's uh it's dangerous uh, that like these technologies are becoming more available and like perhaps cheaper so like many people like even outside of the field can like uh play with these tools um i don't think that's a bad thing mm. you know having a tool like crispr being accessible for any researcher that for me that was like that's like that's a really good thing yeah the problem is on the researcher end. Like mm. the problem is when the researcher is thinking <laughs> on mm. doing things that he shouldn't be thinking on doing. Like that's, um, you know, you can, uh, you, sometimes we have super powerful technologies. You can use them for things that are really good and you can use the same technology for something that is really bad. You can like build an atomic bomb, but like yeah. the same way that you can like, you know, that's, mm -hmm. and it's the same technology and it's on the morals of the researcher to say like, mm -hmm. you know, do you have, we have this accessibility, but the accessibility per se, that I can only think that is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. So how do you as a scientist uh, balance uh, the desire to make new discoveries and like playing around with these tools with like, uh, as you said, ethical considerations? Well, I think in the research that I am in, um, that I do quite a lot more on understanding gene function. I am a bit farther away of the ethical considerations. Um, but when we move to, you know, working on genetic disorders, working with patient cells, working with, with patient samples, mm -hmm. or thinking, you know, you think that uh, it's not all about your research, that there are people behind... Uh, that have donated the samples that there are families behind the the those those kids or like we work a lot with autosomal recessive disorders or the DNA damage response um, you know when you have alterations uh, related to autosomal recessive disorders and you're like you know those 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 individuals that have given the samples like they have families they have like they that they are trying to find a cure or find a, um, you know how to relieve the symptoms or how to understand better what is going on so that's you know, not not at all costs. Like you are aware that that is not okay. You just I just need this because I want to publish in Nature. No, this is mm -hmm. this is something that um, we do the research, and uh, if we are aware of you know our world, we do the research for those people more than ever for any for anybody mm -hmm. else. So when we just like stay in our little bubble and. It's like, okay, this is only a cell line. I was like, you don't think that that came from a person that is suffering from this disease that you're searching. Like, this is not about a nature paper. This is about um, yeah, about making an impact for those people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's... And of course, it's not, not always, not everything works. Like, if that patient consented for X, Y, Z things, I was like, oh, yeah, but we already have the samples. Why don't we do that? <laughs> no, like, no. <laughs> that you have the samples because a person was willing enough to do that for your science and for the scientific community and for the community that is suffering from that disorder for you to be like ah. mm -hmm. no i mean i um we sometimes you know that sometimes people think like uh, the ethical considerations are very strict but it's better say mm -hmm. than sorry yeah so in canada is it uh like these regulations uh, are like uh more or like less compared to other countries yeah, on, on ethical considerations, I think that that's uh, traditionally Europe has always been very tight, um, and traditionally America has always been a bit looser, mm -hmm. like or the states, not maybe not Canada. So, yeah. but yeah, I'll I'll pass the ball uh, <laughs> to to my colleagues because you know when uh, you work, I think when you work with patient data or with patient samples uh, more often, then you are more familiar with. Mm -hmm. Uh, with that, that I'm that I am myself that sometimes we are like in our little bubble of cell lines in the lab yeah. uh, some follow-up questions uh, you mentioned a few times DNA damage response mm -hmm. so like how does uh, this whole thing come into play like when you think about the whole field of genome editing so I think people that were working on the response to DNA damage felt themselves very drawn to this genome editing and vice versa mm -hmm. um, because you know, we are talking about a nuclease is making a break in our genome. That's like DNA damage. Yeah. So a lot of things that you can do to make, you know, editing efficiency in the case of genome engineering 
make that uh, to make it more efficient is playing with how the cell deals with that damage mm-hmm. um, to be able to make I don't know C two D transitions. You need to play how the cells repair that uh, mismatch that you are generating, and it came all somehow together. Like you needed to know about how those cells will repair the damage that you are inflicting mm-hmm. with the Cas9 and with the genome editing techniques to be able to engineer them to go the way you want it. Mm-hmm. And and also, of course, people in the DNA damage response were like, oh, okay, now we have a tool that can allow us to make a single double strand break and study what's going on in there. Uh, now we have super powerful tools um, that allow us to study uh, our genes that are, I don't know, 3,000 amino acids or 2,000 amino acids um, that before were very tricky to study. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there was uh, like a nice intersection there. And, you know, I think people that work on DNA, on genome editing or started from a pure mm. genome editing background uh, were like, okay, we need to catch up with the DNA damage. There was like how the cell responds to, to respond to DNA damage because this is where we are going to find our tools to make this, to make this better. Uh, so um, what animal models do you use in your research? I have only used mice and not that much. Mm. Um, yeah, I shy away a bit from mm. animal models. Uh, I don't think I can do that for much longer. Um, but yeah, I, I, during my PhD, I had, a, I had a little bit of my project that uh, had mouse models. And actually, you know, that's, um, I started my PhD, we made some cell lines, knockouts, some knockings. Um, and then in the span of like three years, three years and a bit, we went from not knowing much about what our protein was doing with the other protein to having a mouse model with like a knocking mm. mouse model already that we could do experiments on. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, yeah, that's when you realize that these new technologies are making the times from like generating a transgenic mice much much shorter or like generating that mice that has carries that specific point mutation uh, like within a PhD mm. that I'm mean, like an, an uh, fairly short uh, PhD yeah. so it was like okay wow right we discovered this mutation within a year and a half into my PhD within three years I'm doing experiments mm-hmm. with mouse with mouse models um, but yeah only mice uh, for for now and I think that that will that will stay like that. Some more follow-up questions. How is genome editing being used to study the function of non-coding regions of the genome? That was one of the things that I get asked, like, how are you going to do non-coding mm-hmm. editing? And I'm like, yeah, why not? Like, that's, uh, um, those regions, uh, non-coding elements have traditionally been a bit more tricky uh, because they have repetitive regions that, you know, if you design a guide RNA that will direct your Cas9, uh, in a repetitive region is that is binding here and it's binding there and it's binding there and it's binding everywhere. Mm. Um, so it's uh, getting a specificity might be a bit harder. Mm. Um, but I mean, there was um, a really nice paper published, uh, I think, yeah, 2021, 2021, um, on using base editing to target um, the responsive elements that regulate uh, fetal hemoglobin expression, Mm. thinking of how to approach sickle cell disease uh, treatment using this technology. And it was was a really nice paper. I think it was out in Nature Genetics. And it was was really nice to see how you can integrate CHIPSIC, ataxic data, identify those potential elements that regulate uh, the fetal hemoglobin expression, and then go mutagenize them and say like, okay, where are the really the sites or the specific nucleotides in those elements, if any, mm-hmm. that do regulate the gene expression? And with that, we have enhancers, we have promoters. Sometimes you are like, you have a set of elements that you think regulate your gene. You don't know which exactly does or what or in which context. So that's something that uh, uh, we can do. And sometimes, you know, you can change. I was thinking like, you know, when you think even about how your protein binds more tightly or less tightly, or you have a, a transcription factor and it has a, tra- a binding site, but the binding site might have positions where you have multiple options, like fixed positions and then positions that wobble. And you're like, okay, changing those positions, does it make it bind better or worse? Like, 
you know, can you modulate the activity of that transcription factor just by mutating a specific positions within the responsive element? Mm -hmm. Can we make an optimal promoter for expression? Like those things like that are, um, you know, are something that uh, we can do moving forward. And I did some work on also on targeting splice sites, like, you know, mm. um, what, what is that? inquire uh, if you target the sites of between dexon intron junctions, uh, whether... You know, that generates a full loss of function because that's sometimes the case. You alter splicing, then the protein is not there. Or whether your cell gets around by generating alternative isoforms or mm. like, okay, well, well that would be that would be interesting, uh, very interesting to see. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's um it's a bit on the known coding end. And I, I think I think it has a it has a lot of potential there, I think. But I guess th that should be really important because most of the genome is uh, non-coding, mm -hmm. Yeah, most of the genome is... So most of the research is actually uh, being done on the coding part? Of course, yes. Okay. Um, maybe because the non-coding, we know it less. Mm. Um, and it's also, I, I, I'm telling you, it's a bit more challenging unless you go to, you know, you have your um, screens or your downstream genome editing experiments guided by, you know, ATAC-seq or chip six that you're like, okay, within mm -hmm. these regions are regulatory elements, you could go and mutate promoters, like all the three primary UTR, all the five primary UTR inside the introns and end up with phenotypes all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, tricky. And also when you think of regions like of heterochromatin, uh, like, you target heterochromatin, usually non-transcribed regions, very compact. Your chances of getting high editing efficiency are much lower mm -hmm. uh, because obviously you have a accessibility limitation there. And to know whether that will impact or not. Mm. Um, so there, you know, I think the I think there is a lot to do on the non-coding uh, on the non-coding genome. A lot mm. whether. That will give us more information than the coding genome. I don't know about it. Mm, interesting. Um, how do you see the relationship between basic research and applied research in the field of genome editing? I believe that now people are thinking much more on the translational value of the things they do because they see, you know, they see therapies moving very fast to clinical trials. They see um, that the technology holds a lot of value both mm -hmm. in public and private, like we'll say public and private research that you do something uh, in the lab and you can identify a target that is drugable. So, and you see seeking much more to move forward that to make a mm. real impact on like, you know, developing a treatment or a diagnostic test or, um, so I think in that field, uh, in other fields, I would say like maybe they are more distant and less connected. Mm -hmm. uh, in the genome editing field, I think there is a strong push on Okay, get your get your technology out there, get your uh, target out there, get your uh, things moving forward, yeah. um, which is which is really good. But also that's uh, there, is, there are big patent wars and things like that yeah. in, in the field, you know. Um, so, do you think uh, we need more basic research right now, or like we have the technology, we should like uh, we just need to like start applying it in all the possible realms? Uh, I think I think both. Like you, we were discussing before that uh, you know there are caveats and there are things that can always be improved. And uh, the a lot of research is being done on technology development in the mm -hmm. CRISPR field. Um, you know those big, we'll say big breakthroughs like the prime editing, the base editing, all those tools. Those are primary. Like okay, technology development is not okay. How we can can we apply this? No, it's like how can we make this technology better? Mm. Um, people are working on discovering new CRISPR systems uh, that will increase the versatility of it. And for that, you need to go back to the bacteria or go back to the archaea and be like, okay, we have this, this one, and this one, and this one, and you know, maybe mm. other um, other strains will have a different modification. Other uh, so that research that is still ongoing and that is still moving very I would say very fast uh, it is really important um, but I think you know we have a good balance uh, um, we have a good balance a lot of people working on it I said like the, mm. the, the, the field is big 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 and uh, but 
yeah, I, I like to think there's a good balance. Mm. Okay, uh, let's uh, shift gears. Uh, what is the most ridiculous conspiracy theory that you have heard? Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> on what? <laughs> I don't know if on gene of editing. I mean, I can give you some. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I want to hear them. Uh, okay. Uh, well, obviously, the main one, uh, the main one is um, designer babies and, like, creating the, the, like, ultimate best race of humans. I mean, yeah, that one... Um, uh, I don't know if that one is a conspiracy theory, like necessarily, um, mm. or very heavily fed by that the fact that actually some of those experiments were being done. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know who told me one that, that I was like, sometimes you think about those experiments that look like science fiction, that you will be like, you know, we will engineer the babies to have two eyes, like, mm. and you're mm -hmm. like, well, maybe somebody somewhere. Yeah. He's doing it like without we know we know the problems of that and you will never do it. But they're like, mm. you know, the world is very big and people have different mm. ways of seeing things and seeing progress. And uh, um, and other people have very little ethical consideration. So um very little morality so they might be like okay whatever let's uh, try to so uh, I think those things were probably fed with the situation of the CRISPR babies and uh, I am afraid that I cannot say yes or no I, I always say like you know it's illegal it's not something that uh, people will do mm -hmm. uh, in the open what is doing being done behind closed doors um nobody nobody knows but mm. and that's i mean i think that nobody like i don't know we will um we will see when when it happens if it happens um yeah but that's i, I don't think i mean seeing seeing the precedent that we have uh, I, I i wouldn't qualify qualify that as a crazy conspiracy conspiracy theory anymore because it was like you know mm. i mean the scientists went to jail but that yeah. It put out the precedent. It put the precedent out there, mm -hmm. uh, which, mm, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, to wrap it up here, uh, two more questions. Um, how do you stay motivated and inspired in your work, uh, particularly during periods when progress is slow or difficult? I like to think, and I say that to my students, um, that... Um, you know, you need to enjoy the science that you do every mm. day. If you focus on, I'm going to get this paper out in this journal, I'm going to get this, uh, I don't know, this grant, I'm going to go and be postdoc in this lab. Uh, mm. And those are goals that, you know, it's good to, keep them in mind, but that may not only depend on you and mm -hmm. that they are very long-term. Mm -hmm. And, you know, science, you know, we cannot change nature. We can only go around and discover it. So you need yeah. to enjoy all that discovery process. You sit in tissue culture, culturing yourself for however many hours and you need to stop thinking like, yes, but this will give me the result of my nature paper. I'm thinking like, okay, right, well, this is, this is my hypothesis. Um, this is, I think this is the best way to test it. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see what it comes out of that experiment mm -hmm. and that with the small results and like the thinking process and the creativity and building a hypothesis, being right, being wrong, like pursuing things that, that you are happy and that you enjoy all that process. And then, you know, if that, um, ends up publishing in the next way, like that's, that's collateral that you enjoy the process of doing science, the process of discovering, uh, on coming up with ideas, I think that that's, I was like, I, I'm I'm usually not lacking motivation because I keep on going like that. And because if not like science and the more you go up, I think the worse. Uh, you have like grand, everybody has like grand rejections. Everybody has favor rejections. Everybody has like fellowship rejections. Uh, you, you apply for PhD positions in like five universities. They say five no's and you're like, okay. Uh, and that, does not diminish your value and that does not, not diminish how good of a scientist you are. It's just like, you know, sometimes this is a competitive field and yeah. it's not designed 
Anytime it's not designed for everybody mm-hmm. uh, to get the grants. It's, it's certainly not designed for everybody to get the grants uh, mm-hmm. or to get the papers. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we are not enjoying what we do in our everyday basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. And uh, lastly, uh, what advice would you give to young scientists who are interested in pursuing a career in genome editing? They should be prepared to like feel like they are behind the field all the time. Like... Mm-hmm. Every day, every day, more things, more things. And I'm like, uh, it's it's, uh, such a fast evolving and fast paced field that you always, uh, my feeling, I'm like, another paper I haven't even read the one that came out like yesterday. It's, uh, it's, uh, there's so much research uh, on that. that It's like, and very fast paced. I always also feel like even as a researcher, you are always going to feel a bit behind. You start your PhD with this model, with this cast model with this editor and then during the duration of your five or four years of PhD there are going to be like 20 different variable versions or like 50 or 100 different variable versions and you're like why am I using the one that I have like four years ago mm-hmm. but you know you need to find a compromise find the best one and find the one that gives you the answers because it's like you're always going to be behind the people yeah. that develop technology if you are working on applying technology mm-hmm. and um, and you have to be you know Good with that, good with keeping up what is coming out there and good with like making decisions and compromises on like, okay, I think I'm going to go ahead with this instead of like trying to constantly see how can I make this uh, better and better and better and better because, you know, there are people working on that research. and Yeah. So how do you like uh, try to uh, stay uh, productive with like juggling all of these things from like... Uh, I don't know, mentoring your students and like uh, doing experiments, meetings, like uh, outreach and all of that. <laughs> That's, uh, well, I try to organize myself. Yeah, I, 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 I am quite thorough on organization mm. um, because it's it's very easy to keep, to I mean, to lose track and, um, and have, I think you have to have very clear what is important and what is uh, less important and especially I think at the stage of the new investigators uh, be like protect your time and also take care of yourself because it, I would say like science is something that never stops mm-hmm. so if you want to work more you will you can work more yeah. so if when I have like already a long day 12 hours and I leave the lab and I'm like I haven't done anything I haven't done anything I have these 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 three classes whatever like I was like what did I do today and you did a lot but Mm -hmm. the pile of work is never ending it's still there I could write one more grant I could do more there are always things but you need to learn when to say yes and when to say no Mm -hmm. and you know and also for students you mentor them and then you also need to let them yeah. fly and make their own decisions and make their own mistakes. You cannot be micromanagement, mm. micromanaging them all the time. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I'm learning. I must say, like, I, I think we never stop learning and I have just started. So it's, it's mm. a learning process for me as well. So. Yeah, that's great. Uh, thank you so much. I think uh, it was great. Uh, any last words? No, no, thank you. Thanks to you, Mike. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. It's 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 yeah. been it's been uh, yeah it's it's been a great interview and uh, I look forward to seeing it and also to seeing many more of your future guests uh, and yeah. all the success for you in your podcast and in your master's and future career. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> all right, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a great review on your favorite podcasting platform. And I'll see you again next time.